Welcome to ArcNex Sessions, episode 81. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia and Ken. Our guest this week is A.L. Hugh, a third-year Master of Architecture student, program council representative at the GSAP, and key organizer with Graduate Workers of Columbia. So, A.L., thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we wanted to have you on and, and to speak about specifically what's happening at GSAP because there's been some pretty historic developments occurring in the last few weeks. Um, at the end of August, Columbia graduate student workers won the right to unionize, and you are a major part of that effort. So can you tell us a little bit about what the mood is right now at GSAP after that decision came in? Yeah, so I've actually been organizing since my first year at GSAP, so back in 2014. There was kind of a lull in my second year, and then all of a sudden the NLRB made this decision, and it came during a week when we were all waiting for our applications to come through. Like, we had applied, and we were waiting for them to come back, and so... This decision has been something that's affected all of the people who were notified as TAs. There was some organizing that happened over the summer about TA ships that we talked to the administration about. So there's some tension that's going on and ongoing. So this particular decision from the NLDR built off of a case, I believe was it from 2004 or so, where Brown University, similar attempts for graduate students there to unionize were struck down, that they, they weren't given that right. And so this is kind of a major reversal of that, that now private universities have the right to form graduate student unions and lobby the university or to negotiate as a unity for certain benefits or for better treatment from the university. So at GSAB, what are the biggest kind of concerns within the now formed student union for the kinds of things that they wanted to approach the institution with? Yeah, so the main issues that have been happening at GSAB are, there are a few things. First is there's a lack of transparency with the administration concerning jobs. For example, this year and in the past few years, when applications would open for teaching assistantships, there would be very limited information about what those jobs would entail. So there would be like a few short sentences about the job, but then that's kind of all you got. You wouldn't know how much you were paid or like who you were working with, really. So you would kind of apply blindly and hope for the best. We're just hoping that if we form a union and we have a contract, we'll be able to like write into the contract that we would be able to have information about what the jobs were before we applied for them and how much we would be paid before we applied for them. Kind of like a regular job in the real world. <laughs> um, <laughs> and What a concept, yeah. Yeah, what a concept. And this is something that's also happening at other schools as well, not just at GSAP, but it certainly feels like something that's very personal just because we go to the school. One of the other issues is that teaching assistantships are a form of financial aid at GSAP. So students really have to plan ahead and think about like what assistantship they're applying for, whether or not that'll give them enough money to make ends meet. And the issue that's happening right now at GSAP is that Sometimes we don't get paid on time. So that makes it hard to trust that we'll be able to pay rent and make ends meet. Like if teaching assistantships are a form of financial aid, then students have to be able to depend on that. And so we hope that if there's a student union, we'd be able to write into the contract that 
GSAP would pay us on time. <laughs> like it's it's that simple. <laughs> yeah, it sounds it sounds like absolutely just like a basic part of employing anyone. Um, yeah. And of course, that the entire concern that the university as an institution has against unions is the idea that the students don't really know exactly what they might be getting into. They think that it's entirely more just like a these are my rights, but in fact, there's a lot of responsibilities as well that goes into keeping a union. So, can you give a little bit more context about what kind of the major pushbacks were? from the university against the organizing efforts? Sure. Because I'm on program council, I facilitate a lot of the meetings between students who are bringing up issues with GSAP and the administration. And one of the things that came up was that GSAP is really doing all that they can because, honestly, the dean has done a tremendous amount for students at GSAP. Um, The school has invested in improving space and improving the amount of financial aid that students receive. But their kind of take on this is that they have more flexibility without a union and that jobs are more flexible in that they can restructure jobs according to needs within the department so that there's actually more opportunities for jobs instead of setting the jobs in stone like at the beginning of the summer and then having an opportunity pop up and not be able to advertise it. So yeah, the school's argument is that there's more flexibility and potentially more opportunity for students. Al, you know, the one of the things I, I don't think a lot of people understand, and myself included, is that this ruling by the NLRB is limited to private universities. And I, I don't fully understand why that is. And do you know the reasoning behind that? I actually don't. <laughs> I wish I did. I mean, I think it was because the decision back in 2004 was also specific to private universities, the Brown case. Mm -hmm. I think it also specifically has to do with how the employees are seen in the eyes of the institution, whether they're also employees of the state, which in the case of the public university, they simply didn't have a stead in this particular case. And the way that the progress that we're seeing happening now at Columbia is happening is that it had to overturn the subject specific to private universities in the previous case with Brown. So can I totally like echo your sentiment where I was like, wait, how is this different exactly? What's going on? But it has so much to do with built-in precedent for organizing efforts at the school and comparable schools as well in in how the progress can actually get made. I don't know if you can talk to this, but the one of the things I've always wondered, and I have, I've had friends who have gone through uh, PhD programs in other settings, are all grad students equal? And what I mean by that is, um, do all grad students, for instance, who are working on their PhD, do they all get fellowships? Do they get room and board? Are they, do they get any benefits whatsoever? Do they get a salary? Is it easy for someone to mischaracterize what compensation is for a grad student and to make it sound as though, you know, hey, PhD, someone who's working at a PhD gets a fellowship of a couple hundred thousand dollars, plus they get room and board. Or, I don't know. Is, is that a reality or is that just kind of a, not a true depiction of what grad students are compensated? Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I think it really varies from school to school. Like, even between like Columbia versus Brown versus Harvard versus Yale or whatever. It also really varies between programs as well, like between GSAP or between like the history department or between the art department. That is like a common, I guess, a common stereotype, I would say, just because like the reality is that it's a lot more complex than that. Like when you just look at the numbers by themselves, it can seem like grad students or PhD students specifically are really well compensated. But what's also happening at GSAP, I learned about this yesterday, was that sometimes there aren't enough 
teaching positions for PhD students who have to fulfill a certain teaching requirement in order to graduate. And so that makes it really hard for PhD students not only to graduate, but also to make money while they're going through their studies. So there are a bunch of issues at the PhD level as well. The one thing I don't think that undergrads or a lot of people who don't understand how graduate students work. Can you talk about how hard it is? I mean, I, I know someone who is a, a graduate professor at, in California, and it, it seems like you have to hustle your ass off and really work really hard to attract a student body to take your class. I mean, otherwise, if you don't have students coming to your class to teach, you really don't have a job. I mean, how hard do you have to work in order to kind of attract a collection of students to your uh, classes? Well, TA ships at Columbia are a little bit different. So teaching assistantships are usually connected to a class that's taught by a professor. But what you were just talking about sounds a lot like what adjunct professors have to go through. I think you're probably right. Yeah, but that's another whole issue about like labor in general in the architectural profession, like in academia where a lot of professors also don't feel job security. And that's kind of another problem, too. There are actually a bunch of adjunct professors, I think, at, at Barnard College who are unionizing because of their employment conditions. So you came to GSAP a couple of years ago. You're now you're in your third year and you got involved with organizing more or less right when you came in. Is that correct? Yes. What, what was the momentum like at that time? What were kind of the efforts going on and, and what was the mood like then and how has it shifted now? Yeah, that was an interesting time because I had just come into the school. I wasn't working a TA ship because I was just a first year. First years generally don't get teaching assistantships because you don't have that much experience yet. Um, I was working they call it a casual position, which just means like you're paid hourly at the visual resources collection. And I had seen flyers for a meeting about unionizing, and I remembered that there was a union at UC Berkeley, and I was like, cool, let me just go check this out. And it just kind of made sense to me that like me being paid $12 an hour and working like 10 hours a week, like that was barely any money. And I was kind of like, well, this union can do something for me. And now it's kind of become like a bigger issue because I'm a teaching assistant and there's more money involved with that and more risk, I guess, from that. But from the beginning, from two years ago, we were just beginning to deliver, like we were just organizing to deliver a letter to the president of Columbia. And it was really a collective effort between all the different grad programs at Columbia. And there was one point where we had the letter and we were going to go deliver it to his office. And everyone had signs for their departments. And it was kind of funny because the one for architecture, like I think I was in studio, so I didn't have time to go to the sign making, the sign making part. Party. And so, yeah, the party, I was going to say party, but um, <laughs> I guess, but so it said architecture and someone had drawn pyramids on it. And so we were carrying these signs and walking up the steps and it turns out the president wasn't there. So it was kind of like, okay, but at least we have the signs. The yeah, sign will last sign. for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we got the message out and the union and the organizers that we work with are really good about getting the word out. And so I feel like there was a lot of momentum back then and it was really exciting. But then the NLRB case kind of like when that happened, it was kind of like just waiting on the NLRB to rule. So there was kind of a lull. 
But now this decision has kind of made everything exciting again. So I want to ask a question as someone who's never been themselves enrolled in architecture education, but of course has heard litanies of stories of like how intense it is and the long hours and how it completely consumes your life. And any, obviously any master's student will have similar stories, but there are particular kind of war stories that go around in architecture of just crazy hours. And uh, these are all things devoted to the actual student work that's going in or the research that's going in and not necessarily the stuff that is being directly paid for or the teaching assistantships and such. So within GSAP, like, can you estimate like what proportion of the GSAP student body is actively invested in some way, whether or not they're actively organizing, but they're invested or they're supportive in some way of it. And and how many people just like don't have the time or just don't even know it's a thing because they're just too wrapped up in the rigors of everything else? Oh, yeah. This has come up in our organizing meetings before. I would say this is kind of a wild guess because we don't actually know how many like actual TA positions there are, but I would say at least 25 to 30% of the school is should be directly invested just because they're teaching assistants or research assistants or people who are working casual positions that would help them become a teaching assistant. But I would also say that, yeah, there's a lot of people who don't know about the union. There are a lot of people who don't work well. They're at school just because of the pressures of graduate school. Um, it really adds a lot to your schedule to work a job while you're doing studio and you're taking tech classes and you're trying to write an essay on top of that. But I, I would also argue that the entire student body should be really invested um, just because of the fact that if TA ships are financial aid and financial aid dictates how many students can get in or who has access to education at Columbia or at GSAP, then that means that like if there's less jobs or if there's less job security, that means that there'd probably be a less diverse student body because there would be some students who wouldn't be able to come to Columbia because they can't depend on that financial aid. And when there's a less diverse student body, there's not as many perspectives going around and it's kind of this echo chamber and it's just kind of bad for the school and bad for the profession in general. So I think everyone should be invested. Can I ask, you know, I, I want to play a little bit of a devil's advocate on on some of this, just just for and not to be too antagonistic, but I'm a guy who went to a state school and I always kind of Columbia, Harvard and Princeton mostly. I've always been in love with Princeton has always been held out as these really elite schools that were really, um, really difficult to get in. And when I hear you talk about uh, the diversity and, and the financial aid, I don't think I really take into account that, you know, I think that mostly rich kids get to go to Columbia. Mostly people, you know, affluent people get to go there. I know there's a tremendous, it's competitive and there's a lot of smart people there. But I think the by and large, the larger public looks at these institutions and sees these places as elitist institutions that the the rich and the wealthy and and that uh, my kid going to state school doesn't get these kinds of benefits or doesn't get this kind of protection and looks at people going to Columbia and go, why the fuck? Should they get all this stuff? Why should they get this kind of protection? And I don't agree with that. I think the things you laid out at the beginning, talking about transparency and getting paid on time, those are, to me, are just basic things that anyone should would expect in their job. I mean, I don't know if it's a fair criticism, 
But I know that given our climate today, it just seems like that's a, that's a, you know, it's a great way for more kind of um, libertarian conservative politics to kind of run you guys down and say that you're just trying to suckle off the, off of the government dole. And, and what do you, how do you feel about that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, no, I've definitely thought about that. And I've heard that argument too before, because it's like, oh, you're, you're a student and you're going to a really good university. Like you're so entitled to be asking for more. And I've always kind of had this disconnect too, because I went to UC Berkeley, which was also a state school. And now jumping over to Columbia, it's like, whoa, like this is a different place. Uh, they're Definitely are a lot of wealthier people who go to GSAP, but there are also a lot of people who don't have that wealth who are going uh, to GSAP who are like deep in debt because of undergrad loans and because of GSAP. And I guess I would argue that it's in the end, it's about the work that graduate students do and whether we're attending a state school and whether we're attending like an elite college, in the end, we're still doing work that's currently being devalued by our departments and by our school. So I would say that protections by a union or a contract is just kind of beneficial because in the end, it's about like fair pay for the work that we do. And I would also say that a lot of the people who do end up getting jobs at GSAP do it because they kind of have to. And so it's kind of unfair to say that like all students at elitist institutions kind of already have that wealth, so they don't need the protections for that. You know, I th when I was thinking about this topic today, the one thing that came to mind immediately was the uh, Northwestern football team when they took a run at the uh, NLRB. Do you see this as an endpoint or just a beginning? Because I kind of see, I can't divorce myself from the student athlete and say that they are different than what you got, what GSAP students or grad students are. I, I kind of, I look at their work and I go, very similar kinds of pegs here that we're kind of like looking at the same kinds of things. Because I think about the, you know, I think about early protest movements in the 60s and 70s, it really, there was a, once one fell, once one thing happened, that the, the successive, the trajectory going forward just kind of fell down. And is there a way to kind of leverage this victory here with other student organizations like athletes and student athletes who are traditionally exploited to no end? I mean, oftentimes they're not going to school because they're um, great academics. They're going to school because they have a skill set that's uh, valued by the university. They don't get paid. They get injured. They get they lose scholarship. You mm -hmm. know, there's, so there's nothing protecting them the way that I think they need to be protected. So they're putting their bodies on the line for a university that doesn't really truly value their efforts and compensate them accordingly. So I kind of wonder, is there a way that those forces can kind of start to coalesce into a larger movement? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think with this historic ruling, there's definitely momentum that can be leveraged for other forms of organizing. And I think there's a lot of work that goes on at schools not just academically, I guess, through sports too, that doesn't get paid or isn't protected and is devalued. And I think that it's important to build on this momentum. Ken, I'm glad you brought up the football example because that, of course, is also like swimming around in my brain when we're talking about all this. There's some key difference, though, that I feel like should be brought up where with this case, at least in the way that the legal cases are being invoked, the Northwestern issue is that having football players as like a means of 
profit for the school is different than having, say, someone in GSAP who is actively contributing to the research or the academic standing of that university system as a research entity. And so it's like this kind of the school might find it all gravy that it's one kind of capital versus another where you get advertising money or you get, you know, young minds helping you build your university's intellectual strength. But in the case of forming a union, I can see this case at Columbia being a real precedent, but nonetheless in a different way for something like a student athlete, because their concerns are just so drastically different. And also the money involved and the consortium that they're involved in are so much of a higher level. It's kind of scary to think about. But I think that when also comparing across like how student athletes might be treated at a state university versus a a private university may have less to do than the fact that it's private or public and more to do with like what sports league they're a part of or what overall sports like organization they're part of. So it's interesting. It's kind of like in the same orchard, but like apples and oranges, if that's a useful metaphor. Ail, as a slight change of topic, but also related to like the kind of ripple effects of this, I wanted to ask you about whether GSAP has had uh, or how they've been collaborating and how they've been interfacing with other colleges and departments at Columbia to get these organizing efforts underway. Like how have they been communicating with the other departments? Yeah, so in the past couple of years, there's always been a core group of students who are heavily involved with union organizing. And by union organizing, I mean that there are a few representatives from United Auto Workers who show up at like town halls or like educational meetings, like info sessions. And then there are also people who are on staff who are employed by United Auto Workers who attend Columbia um, in other departments. So for example, there are organizers from the history department and their organizers from the English department, classics department, from physics and math and astrophysics. And we all kind of go to these meetings and talk about issues that have come up in different departments and strategies for moving forward. And when students in other departments have brought up like really specific things that have happened, like people haven't gotten paid in a long time or people have gotten fired without due process, the union will kind of step in and speak up for them, even though the Graduate Workers of Columbia isn't like an official union yet. So we've been able to participate in that process and see what the union can do for us. And so this past summer, there's been kind of a new group of students who have been really active in organizing at GSAP and have been meeting with organizers who are part of the union to kind of unify the student body um, just because at GSAP, the programs are really separate. Like if you can imagine, all the MRCs are in their studios, like working away. And then urban planning is in a different part of the building. Urban design is like a floor above us, but we don't ever talk to them. Like it's really hard to interact with students even within our own program. So this is kind of brought us all together to unify over transparency and jobs and those kinds of issues. Has there been any thought or any consideration or concern brought to the attention of the union by students that typically, when I was a student and I would get a Pell Grant or I would get any of the grants, the university would jack their tuition. So whenever Congress raised the the cap or the, the, the amount I could get as a grant, the universities compensated for that and raised their tuition. <laughs> so <laughs> I can I can I can see students kind of, you know, the universities are famous or infamous for their passing the buck on to consumer. So by providing uh, more equitable wages and they're going to have hopefully uh, 
better benefits. Do you see that as a as a, a bit of an issue that students are going to be like, you know, I know it's a great issue for universities to drug a wedge between faculty and students because I can kind of see this in my mind. But has that been talked about? Has it been talked about like raising tuition if... <laughs> has that concern <laughs> been brought to your... Or is that something that's just completely my, my own making? That the university would pass along the cost of actually the unionization of Columbia and then pass along those costs to the consumer, so to speak? I'm not sure that's been explicitly said, but I'm sure it's something that's on everyone's mind, you know, like that's kind of one of the things that people will think about, like, oh, like if if a union happens, like, and our wages go up, doesn't that mean that tuition will go up as well? But I think that Tuition has been going up anyway without yeah. a union. So. <laughs> but you know what they do? They just jack you. They just go, yeah, well, it's a, it's a grad student. It's got to be paid more money. So blame it on them. Yeah, they're, they're going to jack us anyway. So and so tuition rates have been going up, but that $12 an hour rate for casual positions hadn't gone up in many, many years. So I think like a union is definitely needed on that front. Like tuition is going to increase anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes me think, too, like, what are the faculty members doing at GSEP around this stuff? Like, what has their role been in, in either coordinating with students or just, just in the halls, like, talking with them and just, like, reading the, the room? How has the relationship been between faculty and students at this time? It doesn't really come up with faculty, I think, because most of them are adjuncts. And I think I mean, I don't actually know, but my sense is that like if they if they say something wrong or do something wrong, like they could lose their jobs. Uh, whereas like we're students, like we're kind of there, we're stuck, like the administration's stuck with us so we can pressure them. So there hasn't been a lot of faculty involvement, really. And now that this decision has gone through, it doesn't mean that there's automatically unions at all these schools, but rather the schools, specifically these private institutions, have the right now for their students to form unions. Whether or not they will choose to do so is a whole other can of worms. But AL, in your organizing efforts and your experience at GSEP, what kind of lessons or just general pieces of advice might you pass on for other students going through this similar process? I would say to try to open up a conversation with administrators as soon as possible. I know that the administration has good interests in mind and that they're always there for students and they're there to support students as much as they can financially and academically. But it's always good to get the ball rolling and to start talking about whatever issues you may have regarding labor and labor at school, just because it's good to be able to talk about that and to hear what the administration's concerns are and to kind of know what they're working on. It's helpful to have that communication so that you know where they're coming from and you know what type of demands you can make and what type of issues the administration is willing to talk about and compromise on. I would also advise that students should kind of work collectively, especially if you're in architecture school and you, f you might feel like you're working all the time and you don't have time to organize and you don't have time to think about anything other than your studies or your studios. There's really a lot of power in numbers. And the more you speak up about it, the more you might find that there's a lot of shared experiences between you and your studio mates. And that's really, really powerful because as soon as you band up and administrators know that there's a lot of students that have similar issues and are being very vocal about it, they might be more willing to listen to you 
and they might be more willing to work on resolving issues with you and to start a dialogue. Hey, Al, what, uh, what are you reading and uh, what are you listening to now out there? Um, I just read... I just read an essay called Informalities and Its Discontents. I read it for studio. I wish I had time to read for pleasure, but I mean, it was still a pleasurable read. And it was about how there are a lot of informal economies and structures that are in place in cities and kind of the positives and negatives of them and what to watch out for when you're designing. What's your cat's name? <laughs> oh, yeah, you can hear my cat. My cat's name is Cherry. Aww. She's the love of my life. <laughs> can we post a photo of your cat? <laughs> yeah, of course. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, Cherry's like a minor celebrity because I talk about her so much. And apparently she wants to participate on this podcast, too. So <laughs> She will be our first non-human. Well, I guess we've had some dog barks occasionally, yes. but she will be our first feline contributor. So if you're listening to anything other than the sounds of, of cats, we like to always make suggestions based on our co-hosts listening habits to other listeners of the podcast just to kind of share what's going on so if you have anything to recommend we're happy to pass it on music podcasts found sound (laughs) whatever (laughs) i've actually just been listening to my discover weekly playlist on spotify because it's really scary how accurate it is i can attest to this (laughs) yeah yeah i do the same it's it's a pretty remarkable algorithm. Yeah. I'm like, I'm always like, wait, have I heard this before? No, but I really love it already. Like within the first <laughs> 10 seconds. <laughs> Spotify should curate, like they have all these mood-based playlists, but they should totally curate a like architecture studio playlist because I mean, <laughs> who wouldn't want to listen to that? <laughs> well, thank you so much, AL. It was great to hear your thoughts on the student union and your thoughts on music and your cat. This was so great. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Yes, uh, thanks to AL and everyone out there listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Amelia, do we have a one-to-one lined up for Monday that we can talk about? We do. So next week, I'm going to speak with Martino Stierli. I believe that's how I pronounce his last name. He is the head curator at MoMA for Architecture and Design. I've been trying to speak with him for at least a few months, ever since there was a slightly faulty, also known as simply false, uh, reporting out there that MoMA was closing down forever. It's architecture and design galleries, which is simply not true. But they are going through some renovations while the entire museum is undergoing renovations as uh, they expand with the Delors Cafio Renfro design into the former Folk Art Museum space. So we're going to talk a lot about curation and exhibition design and future MoMA plans and all that jazz. Excellent. Well, watch out for that on Monday. That, again, is on our other podcast, Arconnect Sessions One-to-One, so you need to subscribe to that separately. But check that out. And until next week, goodbye. (laughs) Until next week. (laughs) Bye, guys. Thanks.